If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Can you finish the sentence for me? I was the only one in the room who... Was trans. Yeah. Was transgender. Hi, I'm Laura Cathcart-Robbins. What if the world told you that you were wrong? Not just wrong for the things you thought or said, but that you were the actual embodiment of wrong. DeLoco Kid, or DeLo, grew up in a small immigrant community in a Los Angeles suburb. And he knew from an early age that he wasn't like other girls. But he never had the language to explain how he felt. What would you do if you only had two choices? Live inauthentically in an attempt to keep everyone happy or live in your truth and risk being an outcast. As I share my story across the globe, I try and say how this decision, I had top surgery. That surgery was one of the most selfish and self-loving decisions I had ever made. And I had to get to that point. Things were nutty in my mind. I kept trying to figure out how to get more happy. This is the only one in the room. In September 2018, I found myself in an all-too-familiar position, looking around the room at the other attendees at Brave Magic, a famed writer's retreat. I found myself in a sea of 600 people, and yet, once again, I was there all alone. I was the only black woman in the room. After it was over, I wrote about my experience in the Huffington Post, and something surprising happened. Comments started flooding into my DM. Dear Laura, I'm a married gay man in my 40s. I work in a hyper-masculine industry where I encounter... I'm Craig. I'm a 40-year-old, white, forgetful Los Angelino. I spent over half of my life in a self-imposed isolation. Too vain to get Dear Laura, the people. my name is Dana, and I live in Charlottesville, Virginia, where the KKK and the alt-right have been rallying. I'm Jewish, and I'm part of a tight-knit community here. These were comments from people from all races, ethnicities, creeds, and nationalities who were moved by my peace because they, too, it felt othered. In this podcast, you'll hear raw, vulnerable accounts from people who are, like most of us, just eager to connect. My goal is that this podcast will make you think twice before judging the person standing next to you at a party or in the pickup line at school or in a crowded subway car. This podcast is for anyone who has ever felt alone in a room full of people, which is to say that this podcast is for everyone. You're listening to The Only One in the Room, presented by Lipstick and Vinyl and executively produced by Christina Barcy. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to like and leave us a review of your thoughts on the show. And if you have an only one in the room story you'd like to share, you can DM us on Instagram at the only one in the room. Enjoy the show. Dilo, I know you're on this detox. Mm -hmm. So do you have a fast that you break or you just start drinking your smoothies in the morning? Yeah, no, it's like lemon water in the morning mm -hmm. and smoothie. And then like you can have two snacks, which is two cups of fresh veggies or, or fruit. And that's it. 
It's like a veggie. Damn. Yeah, it's like a smoothie, three times smoothie. I kind of spread it out though. I'm, yeah. I Do you make the smoothies yourself, or yeah. you buy them? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it it's, it doesn't take that long. No, yeah. I know. I made I made a smoothie on the way here. It's like my favorite thing to do. Yeah, I not know. not in the car, <laughs> but to drink on the way. That's that would be good, right? Yeah. Scott wouldn't like that because we were in his car. Yeah, he'd be very upset if I made a smoothie. I'm there. also very OCD about. Uh, okay, yeah. I'm glad that you, yeah. you can appreciate <laughs> that. Yeah, it's it's like you know our kitchen counter. I'll have six things out, and he'll come in and arrange them yep. without even uh-huh. looking at me. You yep. know, he'll just like do that on the way in. Yep. All right, so that's that's your breakfast. When you're not on the cleanse, what do you normally eat for breakfast? I I usually don't eat breakfast. for breakfast. Okay. I usually start up like around like eleven, twelve. I have my coffee, mm-hmm. which was also a B when trying to get off the oh, detox. Oh yeah, that coffee yeah. headache is like yeah. But yeah, um, just like. Uh, sometimes it just depends. It'll be like oatmeal or eggs okay. or something like that. Yeah. I, I like to ask our guests what they eat for breakfast. And I think if we were keeping track, almost everybody said oatmeal, eggs, or a smoothie. Mm-hmm. Right? There wasn't there wasn't much variation. So those are the popular ones. One said cream of wheat. But, oh. yeah. All right. So maybe because we're in L.A. Maybe. You know, like if you yeah. went to... The, Midwest or the but South. it sounds like a Midwest like, kind of thing, like eggs and cream of wheat, maybe more bacon, yeah, bacon and hash browns and, hash and brown, stuff. Yeah, yeah. no, no shade on the Midwest. Oh my goodness, you I guys really bacon. know how to eat. Some of the best meals I've ever had are in the Midwest. Oh, I love bacon. <laughs> and I, yes, absolutely. I don't eat it, but but you love it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I'm Laura Cathcart Robbins, and this is the only one in the room. But as you know, I'm never the only one in this room because, as usual, my boyfriend, producer, and co-host, Scott Slaughter, who I call Hun, is here as well. Hi, honey. Hi, honey. So today's guests and I were in a storytelling show together earlier this year, and he brought the house down, right, honey? Oh, everybody was dying laughing. Oh, my God, I was laughing so hard. You even had visual aids. I was- <laughs> Bonus. <laughs> I had to bring my game. I saw all the heavy hitters on the bill, so I was like, uh, I got to come up with some visuals. <laughs> Y'all have, like, really nice ones. I'll just have a bunch of dildos. Yes, you did. You projected one very large black one on the stage yeah. above our heads, yeah. and I almost died. Not a black person. No, no, but, but a, a black dildo. A jet yes. black. <laughs> well, actually, I appreciated the large white one myself. Yeah, you did, Seriously. right? <laughs> There was something for everybody in there, wasn't there? There actually was something for everybody. (laughs) All right, so I'm going to do your official intro now. D'Lo is a queer, transgender, Tamil, Sri Lankan, American actor, writer, comedian, whose work ranges from stand-up comedy to solo theater, plays, films, music production, poetry, and spoken word. He is a co-producer for Disoriented Comedy and is currently in development on a scripted series based on his life with BTR Media. There is a documentary on Delo's life work called Performing Girl, which won the Best Short Documentary Award at Outfast in 2013. He was also included in the Emmy-nominated mini-doc series This Is Me. His TV film credits include co-starring in the HBO series Looking, the Amazon series Transparent, the Netflix series Sense8, USA's Mr. Robot, and the feature-length film Bruising for Besos. 
Dilo is the creator of the writing workshop series Coming Out, Coming Home. He holds a BA from UCLA in ethnomusicology. Welcome, Dilo. Thank you. I'm so you. glad you're here. I like the little bits and pieces. Yes, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, yeah, I did that. So I, I pronounced that right, ethnomusicology? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I had to look that up. I didn't know what it was. Yeah. And, and you majored in it. So. I totally did. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I didn't even want to go to college. No. And when my parents found out that I I got in, they were like, you have to go. I was like, no, I'm going to go to video production school in London. I, I wanted to get as far away as possible. Yes. And then they found out my, they found my admissions letter and they were like, no, you're going. You're going to UCLA. And, they, and I had to audition on two instruments. I was like, if I can do ethnomusicology, then yes. I'll, ah. I'll go. Do you want to just say what that is really quick? For- it's basically like anthropology, but through the lens of people's culture. Right. And, and, and music. rituals and yes. music. Yeah. yeah. Um, I say I say through their culture first and foremost because the music is sort of just the leading force, but it's really about how, the context within, right. that the music is played within, what cultural and religious and spiritual and community yeah. context like that. Which makes so much sense knowing who you are, hmm. that that would be something that you would look at. I mean, not that I, I know you really well, but just knowing what I know about you now. It's yeah. like, okay, I can totally see him being into that. I think that it yeah. is a good fit. Yeah. All right. So can you tell people what trans means? Yeah. Transgender, like someone who is transgender, because transgender is a noun more than it is. Like it's not usually used as an adjective. But to be trans means that you are not necessarily aligned with what you were assigned as at birth. Right. So if somebody was assigned, like you come out of somebody's womb and then you're like, doctor says, oh, you're a female. And then your whole life you don't really feel like a female. You feel more masculine or male mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I feel like trans is sort of like a spectrum because some trans people don't necessarily only identify with the gender that is opposite as far as the binary is concerned, opposite to what they were identified uh, assigned as at birth. So I have trans friends who were born, quote unquote, female or assigned female at birth, and then they identify as male now. But I have some people who are assigned female at birth who feel like they're a mix of both. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. they're just a blend. I personally feel like a blend, though I present masculine. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So I think that transgender kind of like can be, can run the gamut. A lot of people use the word non-binary if mm-hmm. you're not at all associated with uh, only the masculine or only the feminine. Yeah. But that's what transgender means to me. Cool. So can you school me a little bit on pronouns? Yeah. Well, there are some people in the queer spectrum, so not just trans and not just non-binary. They identify with pronouns that either are gender neutral, so like they, them pronouns, Mm -hmm. or, you know, somebody... I'm sorry, you would use they or them for a single person. For a single person, yes. Right. So if, if I didn't identify, you would say... Laura, but also instead of she went to the store, they went to the yes, store. Yes, absolutely. Okay. They went to their store. It's theirs. Um, give it to them, mm-hmm. you know, which I think is beautiful. And a lot of different languages across the globe have used gender neutral pronouns. Yeah. Like there's, there might be other sort of identifiers around masculine and feminine, but there are pronouns that are often used. And then, you know, sometimes you might, Laura, you might say, my name is Laura, but... 
I like to be referred to as he, him. Mm-hmm. And somebody might be like, but that doesn't connect for me. Right. And it's like, so who cares if yeah. it doesn't connect for you? It connects for Laura. You right. know what I'm saying? Right. So, you know, I think that respecting where people are coming from is just the same as respecting, like, what name they go by or mm. how they want to be referred to. Yeah. So, yeah, as simple as that. Interesting. So you were born on the East Coast, right? Mm-hmm. But you grew up out here in Los Angeles mm-hmm. in a, a suburb yeah. of Los Angeles that yeah. I've been to a couple of times. Yeah. It's fucking it far really away. A suburb? Like, I don't it's know. It's so funny, right? Like it's, you go out there and you're like, It's like this. the desert out there. It's like the moon, <laughs> right? So, yeah, you grew up in Lancaster. Yeah. yeah. No shade on Lancaster. It's no shade really, at all. <laughs> no shade that, at all. But you raised me. Right. You grew up in an immigrant culture. Mm-hmm. So tell me about that. Yeah, so... My father is a physician, a general practice physician, and um, he, okay, so the island, I need to just sort of talk about the island first. So there's been a civil war that's been going on there. And so the majority of... Which which island? In Sri Lanka. In Sri Lanka. And so the majority of the island is comprised of Sinhalese people who are primarily Buddhist, Theravada Buddhist. And so the civil war has been between the well, largely by the Sri Lankan government and the Tamil Tigers, which was the liberation group. Okay. It used to be that the Tamils in Sri Lanka were almost up to like 15 to 17% of the population. I think maybe even higher. I might be giving you wrong stats, but Mm. they were a smaller group. And so the war between them has been because the Buddhists, they, they want it to be a single nation. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? So it is a genocide, though, if you talk to a Sinhalese person, they would say they would give you a history that was saying, like, no, Tamils were in power after the British. And so we were trying to take our power out. But that's not mm. the fact is true that there were posts that the British gave to Tamil because that's colonization. Like anytime somebody's trying to colonize, they take the smaller group, put them in places of power so that there can be like a riff and it never gets back to the yeah. British. That's part of imperialism, right? But it wasn't that the Tamils had power. Like, there was no way that they could have power in the country. Mm -hmm. So given the fact that my father was in the north, which is kind of like a—it's not as developed. But, you know, they thrived and everything worked or whatever. So my father's part of that population of people from the north of of Sri Lanka. And they had access to education that was kind of standard, right? Right. He also sat an exam that put him into the Sri Lankan University. There he met other Tamil people who were also doing the same thing. So America, during the brain drain, was calling everybody to come over to the States. And it was like him and his batchmates. (laughs) And so one ended up coming to Lancaster Uh and was like, come, everybody come, there's jobs here. Yeah. So that's, that's like literally the story that, randomly you have in the desert a bunch of Tamil Sri Lankan people. Right. You know what I'm saying? And so that's how we grew up. Like, I I almost didn't feel racism as much because every day was brownness right. for me. So you're in, let's just say, lower-income white mm-hmm. culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you operate within the confines of this brown community there. Do you speak? Um, I, I don't speak Tamil. I can understand it. You can understand I'm, it. I'm, like, really yeah. bad at speaking it. Okay. Like, it probably started getting developed after I was in high school. Mm-hmm. We got a mall. You got a that mall. That was a big deal. Yes. That was a big yeah. deal. 
it doesn't have levels. It's just flat. So you could like spend <laughs> all day with your friends during high school just walking from one end to the uh, other end. That's beautiful. And um <laughs> and, and then we got a huge jail, a maximum security <laughs> jail, which is it's like more than half a mile long. And it's such a deep thing. So that ended up bringing jobs and people mm. who were incarcerated, their families, and also cheaper housing. So then the demographics started changing. Yeah. But we're talking solidly that there are more lower income to middle class people in Lancaster, Palmdale area. This whole time, so the mall comes, the jail comes, but you, you're feeling pretty safe where you are? You don't feel kind of the threat of racism or no, 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 no. You do. For sure we do. Yeah. Because also Lancaster was known as the place where the KKK established their first West Coast church. So that's historically been kind of the lay of the land there. So yeah. the white people were kind of like, okay, we're polite. But you could feel this thing. And then my father always talked about, look, the KKK is still happening here. There's a, a rapper named Afro Man who, who sang this song, Because I Got High. Do oh, you know the song? Yes. Yeah. He had a song da, 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 about... Da, da. Yeah. But then he, I got high. Yeah. <laughs> and he has a song where in the video he alludes to the fact, because he's from Palmdale, mm-hmm. that there's KKK there as well. Right. And so, Palmdale is right next to... Lang- Lancaster, so, Palmdale is yeah. kind of like a mush of a, yeah. of, a, of a larger city, right? Yeah. So we heard about these things, and my father had patients that were neo-Nazis and just general sort of disdain towards people of color in mm-hmm. Lancaster that just let us know we always need to keep our eye out. Right. So, so you we were always definitely care- yeah. felt that for yeah. sure. I, I think that there's something when you are like the fly in the buttermilk, then you start almost drowning in the buttermilk and then you're like, I am the buttermilk. Mm-hmm. And that didn't happen to us. Mm-hmm. Like we were Tamil. You yeah. know what I'm saying? We were Sri Lankan. We right. were like I meet a lot of people of color or immigrants who want to be white. Yeah. That's yes. a big desire. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And I'm and that n- never happened with us. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it did, but it definitely didn't happen in my family or the people that we were closest to, you know. We're going to take just a quick break to tell you about a cool new product that Scott and I discovered. And we'll get back to our guest's amazing Only One story in just a minute. Hun, tell me about this new obsession. Honey, I have this new obsession with this new deodorant, Myro. It's a little embarrassing to say, but... I really do like this product. I like the name, Myro. Myro. There's a lot more to like about it. It's all natural. There's no toxic anything, no aluminum, no parabens. Clinically tested for safety and effectiveness. It's also cruelty-free. Oh, good. No animal testing. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Myro is made with a custom blend of essential oils that release over time, so to keep you fresh, and natural cornstarch and sage to keep you dry. Cornstarch and sage? That's some good stuff right there. Yeah. Here's how it works. You choose the scent and the color of your case. The formula is aloe-based for a soothing, comfortable glide with a bacteria-neutralizing citrus and probiotics that keep you smelling great. I like the orange case for travel. It's easy to find. Yeah. You get a refresh every three months delivered right to your door, conveniently timed for when you run out. I hate running out of things. You sure do, don't you? Mm Mm-hmm. The refillable cases and mood-inspiring scents are good for you and the planet. And because the case is refillable, Myro reduces plastic waste by 50% versus typical drugstore deodorants. Now that's what's up. And speaking of 50%, if you want to try Myro and get 50% off your order and get started today for just $5, visit MyMyro.com slash TheOnlyOne and use the promo code TheOnlyOne. You mean if you want to try Myro, you can get 50% off your order? 
and get started today for just $5. Yep. So visit mymyro.com slash the only one and use the promo code the only one to get your obsession worthy, naturally effective deodorant delivered right to your door. Please, let's make the world smell better. Please. Hun, we almost never argue, right? Almost never. But the closest thing we get to arguing is whenever you say, what's for dinner? And I say back what I always say back. I don't know. Yeah, that's definitely a thing. That's why I'm all thank God for HelloFresh. Yeah, we love HelloFresh. And even though you normally do all the cooking, for which I'm really appreciative, I can even make us dinner with HelloFresh. In fact, when I made that chicken parm last night, I found that cooking was actually enjoyable, almost meditative. Here's how it works. They send you a special insulated box to your doorstep, and inside is everything you need to make amazing meals for the week. Hun, talk about the recipe cards with pictures. I got this, hun. Everything is laid out. It's super simple. Everything was measured out and ready to go. But it doesn't taste simple. I mean, the layers of flavors were really rich and delicious. And you can see as soon as you open the box that you've got quality products. You can order classic, veggie, or family. You can switch it up, too, if you want. Tell them about our favorite one, hun, with the fig sauce. Right, it was that figgy pork tenderloin with the roasted potatoes and string beans. The meat was incredibly tender, super flavorful, and it came out the perfect temperature, and everything was done at the same time, 30 minutes, just like they said. I could eat that right now. You're totally making me hungry. So if you want to eliminate what's-for-dinner arguments and have this super easy, fresh deliciousness delivered right to your door, go to HelloFresh.com forward slash the only 180 and enter the code the only 180 for $80 off your first month. Are you serious? That's like receiving eight meals for free. Can we get in on that? <laughs> but seriously, go to HelloFresh.com forward slash the only 180 and get your order in now. Don't forget to enter the promo code the only 180 to get that $80 discount off your first month and get ready for deliciousness. I was just going to ask you more about the culture in your family. Do you have siblings? I had a sibling. She passed away. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, it was it was a long time ago. But, I mean, when I talk about my queer journey, that yeah. her death definitely impacted it because I knew that I was super queer from mm -hmm. the get-go. Like, I knew it. I had crushes on all of the older girls in our community I was a little dude like I looked like a dude I played like a dude like everybody was just like oh that's D you know mm -hmm. nobody questioned it you know it's different when you're born assigned male at birth and then you're exhibiting feminine behavior then everybody's like oh my god this kid is showing that he's gay you know right. but when the flip happens it's it's a little bit there's a little you're bit a more tomboy. leniency exactly yeah. mm -hmm. but people started sniffing my queerness right around like 11, 12, like I w because I didn't grow out of the stage, right? Right. And so they started like, you know, I was questioned, like, are you gay? And I was like, no. You know, and then I just started growing out my hair and tried to like blend in, right? Mm -hmm. But my sister passed when I was 13. Mm. I already knew that this was like in fourth grade or something in my Baptist school, they were like talking about homosexuals. And I was like, oh, shit, that's me. But that's not me. Like, I don't. I don't feel like that. You know, like, I, I knew that it was trying to say something about people who weren't just, like, what I considered at 11 years old to be normal couples. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. But I knew, I was like, but I'm a guy. Like, that can't be me. You know what I'm saying? So in, in your mind, you were a guy? In my mind, I was totally a guy. 
Right. So that didn't apply to you then. In other people's minds until somebody told them I was a guy. Right. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? People used to come up to my parents and be like, oh, what a cute son you have. You know, and they wouldn't correct them. They were like, okay, whatever. Right. Or, Or sometimes they'd be like, actually, this is a girl. Yeah. And then watch people's eyes go, yeah, okay, bye. But you were you were attracted to females. Oh, yeah. And in your mind, you were a guy, so then you couldn't be gay. Exactly. Right. Okay. So, but, you know, also, like, you don't have an understanding of, like, what is gay, what is trans, what is, what is this? You know, like, people are saying it in such a negative way that you are like, I can't be that. I don't want to even seem like that. I know right. it's wrong. I know it's bad. And I knew that it was wrong of me to have crushes on girls even as a kid. But at least that was something I could hide. The way I presented was not, so I had to change it. Anyway, when I was in the third, no, fifth, fourth grade, I forget where it was, but I saw a Maury, Maury show, and it, there was a trans guy on it. And, Maury Povich. Yeah. Yeah. And I was tripping. I was like, oh, my and I felt so much hope, and it was like within a split second, the crowd is jeering and like just totally like giving him hell, giving him hell on this show. And so then I was like, okay, yeah, right. I, so they they were up. they were not supportive. No, no, no. And you know, when you're little, like you see, like oh, there's a possibility, and like in a split second, it's not a possibility. Yeah. You know. So I just kind of just kept it really quiet. At 11, I even ran away because I was like, this is too much on my parents. This is not, I know I'm a good person. Like, I even thought that in my head. I'm like, I know I'm a good person, but this is not going to fly. And so I was like, I just need to, like, get out and do what I need to do. At 11? At 11. Where'd you go? I, I left school, and I traveled to another school. But there was a kid who I had told, and he told uh-huh. the, the— Another Tamal kid? No, no. It was a this other another out, outsider, mm-hmm. another sort of like, you know, her her mother had her when she was fifteen or sixteen, and she was living with her grandma, and nobody really liked her, and right, you know, she was my friend. Yeah, um, I was friends with everybody, but like it was like it was mostly the outsiders that I connected with. But yeah, so you were you were getting back to your your sister's passing was yeah. a turning point. for Yes. You. Well, my sister's passing was like devastation because I wanted to break out so bad. And when she died, I felt like, oh, shit, I have to just stay. I have to stay and just deal with this and like not hurt my parents. And you're 13. I'm 13 at this point. And, you know, I think that I always talk about this, about my mother's journey at like losing one child in a plane crash and then you losing the other one to being transgender. You know what I'm Mm. saying? You know, it it felt like I I know that my sister's death was devastating, but it was like finite. I think for my mother, for her, it my queerness, my transness was never like there was there was maybe a hope that she can make it be what she wanted it to be. Of course, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So that was a journey in and of itself. So, just doing a little research on you, I know that there were then there's a split journey that happens because you do go away to New York. Mm -hmm, mm And your parents have an idea during that time of who you are. Well, the, I came out right before I left. Okay, so anymore. tell me about that. Yeah, I came out to them. You came out as? I came out as gay. Okay. Again, there weren't really, like, whenever we heard the word trans trans or transsexual, mm-hmm. it referred to what we understood 
as men who dressed as women who were crazy. That's what was out there because that was what was on the media and everything like that. Mm -hmm. And so when, like, I didn't even think about what the flip could be if you were assigned female at birth. I just was like, oh, transsexuals are are not cool people. Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. So I identified as gay initially, and then I identified as boy, B-O-I, because so much of my queerness I always knew was related to gender and not necessarily my sexuality, you know? It's, is B-O-I something common to identify as? It used to be. It used to be. I don't okay. know if anybody does it anymore. Okay. Stud, boy, these are things that usually people of color use um, to describe masculine women. Okay. Yeah. One of your characters was B-O-I. Mm-hmm. In, um, was it? Revelations. Was it? Okay. Yeah. Okay, yeah. How okay. do you know that? Because I did some research on oh. you. <laughs> it's like bringing things out the archive. Right? Um, so go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. You, so you, so I, I go to New York, and it was just kind of nutty and rough between my family uh, and I. And it was great in a lot of different ways because I got to, f- you know, start my journey and figure out who I was as a person. Wait, but, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't want to cut you off, but yeah. you, you came out as gay to your parents. Mm-hmm. And what was their response then? Oh, sorry. Yeah. My father was kind of like, he tried to be as accepting as possible. But I think that for him, the fact that he lost my sister, that he was sort of like, there's there's no option to get angry or Mm. mad here. You know what I'm saying? He flipped at first, but he, he rolled back real quick. But he didn't understand, and uh, he, in his way, he went to a conference on gay and lesbian uh, health, I think it was. <laughs> That's great, though. Yeah, it was. But <laughs> it's so funny to hear him. He's like, these are inborn conditions. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. Anyway, but it, he also had a lot of shame around mm. it. I think that it's one thing to accept your child because you're just like, okay, but then you're telling them to be quiet about it or you're worried about what other people will say or you just don't even want to talk about it. Like, the, I think the, what some of the most painful things were just subtle things mm-hmm. that would happen where I would go to a Sri Lankan function and I would see them and they wouldn't want to talk to me. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I'm like, oh, like, I'm your fucking kid, mm. you know? Mm. But so anyway... All this to say that they, and your your mom how was how did she she, she wanted to change me she was okay. all about trying to get she was like this is this is not right this is wrong like maybe you could just be like the monks or the nuns <laughs> or whatever like like asexual, asexual or asexual, yeah, yeah. yeah and I was like I was like uh, okay you know whatever and I would bring different female partners that I was seeing all the time mm-hmm. I would even bring not dudes that I was seeing but like. I would bring I would I would make them kind of wonder <laughs> but right. but 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 they but whenever it was like a woman they would be like okay wait what's, what's going happening on? and yeah. you were you were sexually active at this point oh yeah yeah I was yeah. I was like when did that when boy. did that start <laughs> when did that start I I think I started fucking like right after uh high school after high school after high school okay. yeah and so you you graduated, you got busy. I got busy, boy. Yeah. And 
you know, like it's like all those hormones that are pent up from puberty and then you're just like unleashed, mm-hmm. right? So, yeah, that was a fun time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so then you go to New York. I go to, yeah, so I go to New York and I'm learning how to become a queer adult. I'm also learning to become a, like, Somebody who says, like, and lives by the fact that they are a creator, like an artistic creator. And I had beautiful sort of, you know, as a gender nonconforming person back then, like, there were no acting classes. There were no things that I could just kind of find in order to, like, lift me in my career. And Mm -hmm. so I was being mentored by some incredibly fantastic, incredible, amazing, loving queer artists of color in New York. And so they offered space and opportunity, and I became very, like, probably more sharp. I mean, I was also politically raised here in L.A. through the Revolutionary Communist Party, so I had, I understood the power of art. And these people were like, that's also so important in our work, but also who you are is so crucial for how you get your story out. You become who you want to be is if you pay attention and you reflect back on your story. So there was like stuff happening on both sides. How amazing for you to have kind of been confined in Lancaster where you you had to conform in a in a way Mm -hmm. to a standard that wasn't that wasn't your standard. And then I mean just imagining that New York City you were in New York City. Yeah. Yeah, Right. Must have been so freeing. But yeah. Yeah, yeah, in the borough. But yeah. it was still like that vibe yeah. and you could find your people yes. and people of color. Absolutely. Who probably grew up similarly yeah. to the way you did in, in their own cultures. I had that in UCLA a oh, lot yeah. more too. Yeah. But I think that in New York and I also, you know, even in, in my high school, the small amount of people of color that were there, mm-hmm. we all banded together. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So, like, my my community, when, when I talk about it, is very pan people of color. That's my comfortability. It's not just yeah. with queer people or just with South Asian people, but it is with a whole bunch of different people. But in New York was where I could do the same kind of journey, but artistically. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that was the difference. And so that was where you got inspired to start the path that you're on now. Yeah, well, kind of that happened in college anyway. Okay. But I think that when I saw other queer people making a living, mm-hmm. making art, that made me realize like, oh, like there's something here that I could live and yeah. do. And then I know that hip hop was part of your life, even just growing up in Lancaster, right? Yeah. That you had a lot of hip hop influence. You bring that into your spoken word. Mm-hmm. Is there other things that you pulled from to create the art that you do now? I think that hip hop just being kind of like what I was listening to and the culture, mm-hmm. like the cultural culture that I was living in. I feel like that's kind of just there. Like a lot of my work earlier was very hip-hop and spoken word. And I think that who I'm stylistically like even in comedy are people who have also come from that culture. You Mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? Whether they're black or if it's like John Leguizamo. You Mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? Yeah. But I think that right now who I can say like if if hip hop is like the tea that I've been infused in mm-hmm. then I would say that how I taste on other people's palate is 
I, I've created a mix of like my father's humor and the humor, everything from Benny Hill to Monty Python to mm-hmm. Chris Rock to, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Like it's this kind of like a big mashup. Yeah. You know. So your art's coming together in New York and you're honing it and you're living it. You have to come out as gay, though, a second time to your parents. How come? Yeah, because I had a girlfriend. Okay. (laughs) I had a girlfriend, and, you know, like, I always make the joke that, like, when you think that if you came out once that people would remember that shit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But when people say that coming out is a process, what they really mean is people have selective hearing. Mm -hmm. Because it was like I had to prove, it was almost like the, the, the thing that nailed the coffin shut for my mother, like it was like, oh, now there's no turning back. And so she tried everything she could to like just be anti this relationship, anti me being gay. And this was still where she was sending me around to all these like holy people trying to change me. Ah. And so were you back in California at this I point? Was, so I would go to mend. Okay. I knew that if I was challenged to walk my truth as an artist so much of that meant that I needed to walk my truth as a person Mm -hmm. and this is just like the responsibility placed on my shoulders by people who like didn't grow up with half the shit that I did as queer people you get what I'm saying yeah so they were like if we did it we're asked like we wouldn't ask you to do this if we hadn't haven't done it Mm. so I would go back to mend like I always tell students that I talk to and in the college university circuit, I'm like, you know, there's some parents who shouldn't have been parents. And, like, that's just the truth of it. But if you feel like there's a little sliver of hope, allow for that seed to grow. Mm. And that means that you'll go and you'll try and mend and you'll be shut down, doors in your face type thing. And then you build yourself up and you get strong with your community, with your queer people who love you, who have gone through the same thing, who will let you laugh and cry at the same time. Mm-hmm. And then you build yourself up, and then when it's re- when you're ready, you try again. Wow, you know, yeah. Because with anything that we really want, like, mm-hmm. and then you know, at some point, hopefully, you realize whether or not it's actually worth it. And yeah. I feel like nine times out of ten, when you understood that there to be a sliver, it will be fruitful. Yeah. Well, and there was a point, and I love what you just said. I love you. I think that's really beautiful, and it's it really shows your compassion for your parents. Because you understand that they were dealing with just not just the loss of an ideal, mm-hmm. but they but they believe themselves to be dealing with an actual loss. Yeah, which is why I'm assuming somehow the idea of marriage came up. Yes. Can you tell me about that when you got that? Was it well, a that call? was the first time? That was the first okay. time. That was over the phone, and so yeah, that that was when I came out the initial time because they were trying to arrange my marriage to uh, to a man. To, well, I mean, it, <laughs> it was like my father was calling me and he was like, look, we found two men for you. And I was like, what for? <laughs> and and, uh, and he was like, you know, you don't know what the hell you're going to do after college. And, and I was like, I'm, I'm good. He was like, no, what are you talking about? They're two doctors. And I'm like, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> he, and then he was like, well, do you have a boyfriend? And I was like, no. He's like, what's the bloody problem? There are two doctors in North Carolina, and you can pick which one you want. They're brothers. And I was like, wow, that's really feminist of you. Yeah. So, but that's how I came out, is through through that yeah. thing. Out. Do you think that he thought you were going to be excited? You know what I think? I think that they sniffed it. Mm-hmm. 
And yeah. they just were, it was like this, their d- denial is a river in Sri Lanka. Yes. Because <laughs> I feel like there's no way my father of all people would call me to arrange my marriage. Mm. If any, if anybody, it would be been my mother. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So that's funny. Yeah. So somewhere in there, you've you get the surgery. Is I that get, correct? Well, we can't call it the surgery. Okay, sorry. But, Tell me. But what do I say? This is this is so. At some point, I medically transition. Okay. Uh, or I started my medical transition. But I also feel like for trans people, a lot of people are like, if you say the surgery or the thing, like it kind of puts a cap on it. And I feel right. like that's not really a trans story. I don't think it's anybody's story. Like, yeah. are we done transitioning? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, we're ever changing, ever evolving. You well, know? and that's what transition means, right? right. Is right. that is that change. So you... My transition starts incorporating a medical aspect to okay. it. So some people say that they're trans and they never get anything medical done. Mm-hmm. They just, that's how they identify. Right. But my journey involved me- medically transitioning. I had top surgery and generally I'm very open with what surgeries that I've had, but w- you're not supposed to ask people, trans trans people, like what, what their medical transition is. Okay. But because I talk about it in with context in that as I share my story across the globe, I try and say how this decision first, because I only started hormone replacement therapy like six, seven years after Mm. top surgery. And top surgery is a double mastectomy for people who don't know. But that surgery was one of the most selfish and self-loving decisions I had ever made. And I had to get to that point. Like things were nutty in my mind. I kept trying to figure out how to get more happy. And, you know, I was making money, I was, but I was on the road all the time. I was exhausted. I felt like I could never, like I just, I wanted to be the me I had dreamed of when I was little. You know what I'm saying? And so that decision was probably the biggest decision in my life. Mm-hmm. And I never, ever had any point of regret on that. No. No. Thank you. Thank you for that lesson so yeah. that I'll, I'll know going forward how to speak about it because it's really important. It reminds me a little bit of, of myself. You know, I was, I was in a marriage for a long time where I wasn't, not, not because of anything else, but from, I didn't feel like I could be authentic mm. and still be loved. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't authentic. Mm-hmm. And then the decision to leave that marriage and to find my authentic self was the best thing that I ever did, even though it was so painful. Yeah. And it was not at anybody. Right. It was just something right. I needed to do for myself. I totally understand. So it, that, it, it reminds me of that, that kind of, oh, I need to, I need to do this because I'm in pain. Yeah. And nobody else is going to solve this for me. I need to figure out how to be authentically me. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Absolutely. I want to talk about your art because you're really busy. Yeah. <laughs> and I know you're on the road a lot. But before we do that, there's just... One moment that I wanted to have you discuss, because I love this story, of the first time your mom gets your pronoun right. Yes. Yeah. Can you tell us that story? Yeah. So I was in, I had come to her house and, and well, the thing is, she still doesn't get it right. <laughs> okay. But she did that time. But it was, yeah. but it was so interesting. Like she flips back and forth, but now it just is silly because she'll be like, she and she'll refer to me and people are like this lady don't know mm. what's going on 
Um, <laughs> who's she but, talking yeah, about? Yeah, <laughs> who's she talking about? Which probably in their heads they're like, oh, immigrants. Mm. But um, <laughs> oh, I was I went to her house to tell her, you know, it was another mending situation, and um, she and I weren't talking on the phone a whole lot at all. She like if it was anything, it was just like we weren't even connecting. Mm. In fact, I I don't even think I recall talking to her much on the phone. If anything, I would talk to my father. And I went over to her house and I was like, I'm just gonna tell her, just kind of let her know, like this is what what's up, and you know she can choose to do what she wants to do with it, and I can make my decision based off of that. So I went to her house to tell her that I had a girlfriend, who I'm still with, oh. uh, no longer girlfriend but partner in life. And then I had to tell her about top surgery. And so I got to her house, and she was, I I told her that, and there's a whole story around that, but I told her that she was kind of okay. And all of a sudden, in the because she was in the kitchen cooking, and she was like, I need ginger. Mm. I was like, ginger, okay. You know, like, <laughs> I just told you I had <laughs> surgery. And she kind of had some inkling towards, uh, or, or inkling about, the fact that I was making decisions for myself. But I'm trying to make this very short. Mm-hmm. But we go to Trader Joe, and I'm tripping. I'm mm-hmm. tripping because I just come out for the third time, and <laughs> I'm thinking she's, like, going to lose her cookies in the Trader Joe. Right. And I am, I'm like, we get the ginger. She's running low on her hot cocoa, so I'm looking all over the damn shop for it. And I get to the uh, place where it is, but she was already talking to the clerk to find out where it was. And I'm looking up and down the aisles. I can't find her. I'm thinking she's crumbled up somewhere crying. And then I find her in the hot cocoa section. And I was like, hey, I'm, I already found it <laughs> for you. And she looks up at me and she looks up at, at the clerk and she goes, oh, don't worry. He already got it for me. Mm. And I was like... Like, because I, like, just in half hour before that, I just, we didn't even talk about pronoun. We didn't even, you know what I'm saying? And I was like, oh, ma, you just called me. And she was like, you're confusing me. And she slapped me across the face. <laughs> That's so wow. awesome. <laughs> that immigrant love. Oh, no. But... But yeah, like, but you were still happy. I was still happy because <laughs> yeah. it felt like there was some air finally. Mm-hmm. A little bit of that air let off the tire and everybody could just breathe. And yeah. It's been a journey even since then, but I would say my partner kind of cushions a lot of it. Mm-hmm. So again, for me, as, as a writer of color, mm-hmm. I'm also a person in recovery mm-hmm. from drugs and alcohol. I'm 10, almost 11 years sober. So... There is a special, the feedback I get from people of color who are in recovery, it's very important to them that I speak the way that I do Mm -hmm. about it. I'm imagining that for the communities of color to have you going through your journey out loud Mm -hmm. is really important. I think so. I mean, I I get it reflected back to me by community. I think that it's also in the way that it's shared. And I get it from people also who are not queer or trans or people of color. But it means the most when somebody who has all these other options out there, like Instagram, YouTube, like people sharing their story. But there's something about the lives telling of the story that there's, it's the magic of theater. It's the magic of storytelling that is so impactful. Yeah. 
And so I appreciate that, mm-hmm. the reflection, yeah. That's what you've been doing lately. You've been going around and, and telling your story or telling stories and mm-hmm. entertaining people live. Yeah, I do stand up here and not so much in L.A., but like mostly on the road, college, university, circuit, festival circuit. Sometimes mm-hmm. if I'm in another city that doesn't have that big of a comedy scene, I'll do those cities as well. And then I do solo shows as well. And, yeah, just doing that. Yeah. And was there anything that you wanted to tell me that that you feel like it's important for people to know? Yeah. Well, when you talk about the only one in the room, mm-hmm. I just kind of remember this one instance, and this has happened to me countless times. But as a masculine presenting, and when we're talking about this, this is a very... My masculinity is associated with black masculinity, right? It's associated with urban masculinity. And so when I I remember going, this always happened, but in so many different realms, my body is policed in a particular way that isn't typically what is South Asian. Like I don't get the terrorist stereotype on me. I get the the other stereotypes. And so I remember going in to see a friend of mine show in a theater, a small theater, and it was all like white people, and I was literally the only one who was not white. And I sat in the front, and the place is packed, and there's a seat empty next to me, and in a, to the left, and a seat empty next to me on the right. And throughout the whole show, and then when I looked in the back, there were people standing too, and mm. I was like, okay. And and I knew what was happening here, and even when I went in, there was shade, and even when I left, there was shade. But I was like. You know, as somebody who is queer, as somebody who's transmasculine, as somebody who's of color, as somebody who's an immigrant, as somebody who gets who gets profiled as black or Latinx, mm-hmm. don't tell me these good white people in the audience aren't racist. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Don't don't tell me that you're. If I heard from any one of them, oh, the stuff that's happening in the news is terrible. The police, like, don't tell me that shit. Because you haven't unpacked your own shit. Mm. You know, there's a whole damn room and there's empty seats on both sides of me. Come on now. You know what I'm saying? I even moved over at some point thinking that somebody was going to, you know, I moved again. Mm. And at the end, I was still the one in the middle with these two seats next to me. So I just think about that imagery and I'm like, queer people are already dealing with their own stuff. Like, are people tripping off of me gender-wise or sexuality or how I present myself and then layered on top of that is when they're of color and layered on top of that is how chocolate they are I sometimes I just want people to be like just imagine all the layers going Mm -hmm. into this world with Mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying yes and you want to not sit next to me in a theater wow you know yeah that's all I wanted to say I really appreciate that thank you for saying that Scott's going to have some questions for you about that when we finish. He's a whole but, list. Oh. Yeah, he has a whole list. <laughs> Just kidding. So thank you for all of that. And now we're going to get into the second segment of the podcast. One of my favorite parts, it's called Dear Laura. All right. So this is from Christina. Mm-hmm. And she says, Dear Laura, my name is Christina. And I identify as pansexual. I am also married to a quote, unquote, him. And have a grown child. And oftentimes I'm out with others, but not to my son. And there never seems to be a right time or place. I'm wondering if it's all fear-based or whether I should let the conversation organically come about. I think that, I mean, I I want to empathize with her fear and her pain. But 
on another level, I'm almost like, well, remember when all the stuff that's in you that around what you heard as a pansexual person, pansexual meaning that you're attracted to genders across the spectrum. Mm -hmm. And so I just, sometimes I'm like, reflect back on your internalized queer phobias, Mm. you know, in order to understand that it's not necessarily about your child here. It's really about you, Ah, you know, yeah, and how you want to sort of just share, like, you might not be accepting so many parts of yourself, and so therefore you 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 can't fathom sharing that with with. There's so much fear around it, and I feel like kids these days, it's like you could tell them anything, and they're gonna get it reflected back to them quicker out out in the world or in the internet. So, like I'm teaching this course right now, the coming out, coming home thing, and anything that, and it's really about like art as a way to sort of do deep reflective yeah. work, right? Yeah. And there's so many layers upon layers. We're never we're never gonna stop unlearning all the things that we've been taught. And so I was just told by my partner yesterday that DNA, you know, in intergenerational trauma, there's like an on switch in the DNA, right? So like let's say somebody had PTSD from a war and you're carrying that, but if you work to unpack that, then it offs. It mm. turns off. So you don't get to share that to your Right, the next generation. generation. So I just think about that and I'm like, if you own that, then other people get to own that as well. Like Mm -hmm. we have to keep working on unpacking all of this stuff that has been put on us. It's not our fault, you know. And I think that really in this letter, it's a lot of self-judgment for herself that I'm picking up on, Mm -hmm. which is which is what's most sad about the situation. You know what I'm saying? Because I have that. Like all of us have that. And it's just like, I, why do we do this to ourselves? And then we stop our children and the, our nieces, nephews, whatever, from learning and experiencing the expansiveness of ourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're not doing anybody a favor when we're, when we're just giving snippets of ourselves. No, that makes so much sense. And it, it's like she's scared to make her child uncomfortable because she's scared that will make her uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. If her child might and, and might what, reject her, yeah, yeah, right. And and what you're saying is that you know children, especially children nowadays, and we don't know how old this child is, but the awareness children are intuitive too. Yeah. You know, they yeah. know they know when shit's wrong, mm-hmm. and until they have a way to identify what's wrong, usually they make it about them. Yeah, not that this is wrong, yeah. but if there's yeah. a secret being yeah. kept, yeah, then that would be the thing that that vibrates the vibration. Like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, like totally what? What that. are you not saying? Mm-hmm. What? Why is that weird when you see that woman? Yeah, when you're yep. with dad or yep. whatever. Yeah. So I I think that's really that's a great answer for her. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, I, my heart goes out though because I want to. I almost am like, what are you sharing with your child if you have so much shame? Because mm. then the child might also be stuck in binary where it might be hard for them to grasp it now. Right. But but the work needs to be done. Yeah. Yeah. Free your mind. The rest will follow. Yes. All right. So can you tell us? I know that you've been traveling and performing. What's next for you? Where can people find you right. on social media? Like, tell us all of that. Yeah, my social media handle for everything is DLocoKid. That's D-L-O-C-O-K-I-D. There's apostrophe, right? No, no. There's no apostrophe. Okay, there's no apostrophe. For the handle, it's just straight. I see, yeah. yeah. 
that's like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, mm-hmm. whatever. And there is like an imposter dilo who's a who's a rapper. Oh my god! Yeah, he has such a huge following. Yeah, but don't and Google him. No, don't. Yeah, because I think one is one of his songs is called "No More No More Hoes." Yes. <laughs> and somebody somebody who is like really deep. And I was like, no, like that's not me. That's not that's you. Not me. That's so yeah. not you. Thank you so much. Thank yeah. you so, so much, much for this. Yeah. It's fun. Yeah. Thank yeah. you so much. I'm sure you're helping a lot of people, and it really helps somebody like me to hear the language and the understanding of, of the transition, and um, we mm-hmm. really appreciate you being a part of the only one in the room. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Good luck. Thank you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and stay tuned for our bonus after show, Scott Talks, coming up next. <laughs>